trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is the place we gather to revel in wrong think. It's not just a pleasant way to pass the time. It's actually kind of a uh, necessary form of survival these days. Wouldn't you agree we live in interesting times? Freedom seems to be in eclipse at the moment. And uh, I'm very determined. I will be a free man. And I'm encouraging you to choose to be a free man or woman and, and to make the choice to think as clearly and independently as you can about what's happening around us. I have some wonderful sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. If you have need of their services, please feel free to contact Garage Door Pro Services, lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, hslammo.com. And, and there's another new sponsor on the website, and that, uh, that is Borelli, that uh, has wonderful uh, supplies for, for shooters. I'm talking shooting gear, cleaning gear for your guns and so forth, uh, parts and accessories. Well worth your time to uh, do a little browsing, some great daily deals to be found there as well. So, let's, tar- let's start by talking a little bit about language. I had the opportunity last night to attend a lecture on critical race theory. And I, I got to give credit to the, this group. I'd never heard of the group before. They call themselves the Magic Valley Knowledge Seekers. And I think they're pretty serious about uh, they want to expand their horizons. They want to know what's going on. So they invited a former attorney general from the state of Idaho, uh, Jim Jones, to come and speak about critical race theory or CRT. And I have followed Jim Jones for quite some time. He's, he's been very active politically. He is, uh, I'm going to try and say this nicely, he's a very likable person. He's, uh, you know, former attorney general. He's a decorated combat vet- veteran and, and uh, has, has been a very active political voice. But uh, I'm telling you what he learned, what he taught us rather about, about CRT last night was severely lacking in many areas. Essentially, what we learned was, well, CRT, nobody can really say what it is. So if parents complain about it in school, the best thing that you can do is ask them specifically who was teaching it and where did it happen? What, in other words, try to pin them down on specifics. And, and, you know, this is the funny thing, though. There's a lot of wiggle room because critical race theory is just one way of saying uh, a number of different branches of social justice theory or critical justice theory. So no matter how you approach it, someone's going to say, oh, no, no, that's the wrong definition. That's not even that's not even CRT. See how handy that is. It's a rhetorical device by which you can you never have to admit that someone's. Oh, yeah, they actually are teaching kids that uh, racism is everywhere and it's systemic and so forth. But it comes down to language. And this is the thing that uh, I have noticed probably because I speak for a living, I write for a living, and in the content that I create, language is extremely important. And I'm, I'm more convinced than ever, the battle for control over our souls starts with the language that we use. So to that end, Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute has a great article from the front lines of the language wars. And he starts with a quote from the Bishop of Avia in Spain back in 1492. This is Bishop Antonio de Nebrija, 
I hope I'm saying that correct. I'm probably butchering the name, but language is the perfect instrument of empire. And Jeff Deist says the bishop was correct in his time and ours. Spain proceeded to become the most powerful empire in the world over the following century, spreading her mother tongue across the Americas, just as the Roman army had imposed Latin across its sweep, and just as the British Empire would bring English to India and Africa. American dominance in the 20th century similarly meant English became the default international language of business. English speakers today enjoy the privilege of traveling a world where airport marquees, road signs, restaurant menus, hotel staff, and shopkeepers all cater to us. So we might think the global language wars are over, with English declared the victor and Mandarin Chinese the only future challenger. But now we have to consider whose English will prevail, because there's an ongoing battle to influence not only our words, but our very thoughts and actions. Whose English will prevail? Well... That's, uh, you know, the top-down English of academics and politicians and journalists of the Associated Press, the Modern Language Association, Merriam-Webster, or the Human Rights Campaign, or the natural evolving English of speakers and writers operating without imposed constraints. Jeff Deist says this is a tough question to answer because language is more than a tool for communication and cognition. It's also an institution in society and like all institutions, is subject to corruption and capture by those with political agendas. Since language is the starting point of our entire epistemology and metaphysics, in other words, we process sensory data and thoughts using words, control over language is an obvious prize. He says we can analogize attempts to impose preferred language with interventionist central planning in a marketplace. While bottom-up evolution involves linguistic entrepreneurs acting in a laissez-faire system. Now, of language, the analogy is imperfect. Language cannot be owned, and there are no property rights issues involved. But language certainly can be controlled and steered, whether by officialdom, by politicians, by professors, by celebrities and influencers, and by cultural elites. Deplatforming, canceling, even criminal hate speech laws are the enforcement tools against wrong speak. So the language wars are not merely academic. Now, he says all of this is the subject of his recent paper, which considers the question of top-down imposition versus natural evolution in the context of recent political phenomena like Brexit, Trump, transgenderism, Black Lives Matter, equity, and social justice. But here are four key concepts to help understand the front lines of the linguistic battlefields. First, words are intentionally stripped of all meaning by overuse and abuse. Now, this is explained in George Orwell's famous exposition on meaningless words, which he understood as plain language used in consciously dishonest ways to impose political agendas. Thus, we see words like fascism, racism, Nazi, and democracy, which all had once common, reasonably understood usages, converted into mindless bludgeons wielded in political combat. Meaningless words elevate the speaker or writer as inherently good and just us, you know, while placing the targeted recipient into a category of very bad person or them. So if words are tools, meaningless words are hammers. Second, words are coded and embedded with meaning beyond their simple agreed upon definitions. Now, sometimes this is crass and despicably obvious, like when the term denier is used to liken climate change skeptics to Holocaust deniers. Sometimes it's more subtle, 
as when Hillary Clinton mentions our sacred democracy without explaining how, why, or by whose authority we should hold in religious reverence a political system of mass voting. And sometimes words like sustainable or inclusive are used so amorphously as to render them a form of a luxury good, like a linguistic Birkin handbag. The identity and status of the user become the meaning. Third, the newly imposed words contain their own admonitions and exhortations. Social justice perverts an individualized temporal concept, justice, into an undefinable and unreachable broad societal goal. Equity distorts the idea of equal treatment under the law into an unachievable and actually undesirable goal of equal outcomes. Systemic racism erases individual moral agency, creating a form of original sin or martyrdom depending on one's race, regardless of one's own beliefs and actions. Only active anti-racism can atone for this. Cisgender creates an entirely new category for what was considered the default status up until five minutes ago. The imposed words effectively beg the question on a meta level, pressuring all of us to reconsider reality. And finally, the newly imposed lexicon is not intended to advance communication and understanding, but rather to browbeat and demoralize. Now, we especially see this in the endlessly fluid world of trans language, where the new acronyms and phrases issue forth almost constantly. The early adopters of the new words don't really expect average people to adopt and keep up with the new terms. They're used to demand respect for and acquiescence to the new sexual landscape. And those who fumble with the bewildering new rules can be attacked as misgendering or disrespecting trans people. So the goal is not to help ordinary people navigate the uh, sudden rise of trans issues through kindness or acceptance. Instead, it's to impose an entirely new way of thinking about our most basic human biology and identity. He says language goes to the core of how we perceive and understand the world. And it naturally changes over time, both through top-down imposition and natural evolution. But when the imposers have an agenda... Jeff Deist says we should recognize it and understand it. Now, there's more to this article. You can find it for yourself in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. I strongly urge you check this one out. It will definitely change the way you listen to the news or read the news or even commentary because you'll recognize how language is being used in some cases as a hammer or in some cases as a mechanism of control. This is important stuff to understand if you're serious about thinking for yourself. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by GarageDoorProServices.com. Now, they're located in St. George, Utah, but they serve St. George, Cedar City, Mesquite, Nevada, Colorado City. It's a pretty broad area, but given the amazing amount of growth that's going on in that particular corner of the world, that's a good thing. So if you are in need of commercial garage doors or if you're in need of residential garage doors, this is the company, Garage Door Pro Services. Garage Door Pros. They install, service, and repair garage doors. Uh, by the way, the doors they sell are garage doors made in America. So pick up the phone and call them, 435-525-2773, or go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. 
Came across a wonderful article earlier today from Judge Andrew Napolitano. And, and it just reinforces something that I learned some time ago, thanks to the incomparable Joseph Sobran, and that is our natural rights are what limit government's power over us. That's why it's so essential. When someone says, I have rights, that's why what the Bill of Rights is not to an explanation. Okay, people, here's what you can do. The Bill of Rights is a complete limitation on government, as in Congress shall make no law or shall not be infringed, you know, to keep government off our backs and allow us to exercise those rights. And Judge Andrew Napolitano has this incredible essay published on Lou Rockwell about taking our rights seriously. And his point here is if you don't take your rights seriously, if you don't even know what they are, if you can't claim them, use them, and defend them, then you better not expect government to take them seriously either. He starts with a quote from John Stuart Mill. If all mankind, minus one, were of one opinion... Mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. Judge Napolitano says, The world is filled with self-evident truths, truisms, that philosophers, lawyers, and judges need or know need not be proven. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Two plus two equals four. A cup of hot coffee sitting on a table in a room, the temperature of which is 70 degrees Fahrenheit, will eventually cool down. Now, these examples, of which there are many, are not true because we believe they are true. They are true essentially and substantially. They're true whether we accept their truthfulness or not. Of course, recognizing a universal truth acknowledges the existence of an order of things higher than human reason, certainly higher than government. The generation of Americans that fought the War of Secession against England, according to Professor Murray Rothbard, the last moral war Americans waged, understood the existence of truisms and recognized their origin in nature. The most famous of these recognitions was Thomas Jefferson's iconic line in the Declaration of Independence, that self-evident truths rather come not from persons, but from the laws of nature and nature's God. Thus, all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a truism. Jefferson's neighbor and colleague, James Madison, understood this as well when he wrote the Bill of Rights, so as to reflect that human rights do not come from the government. They come from our individual humanity. Thus, your right to be alive, to think as you wish, to say what you think, to publish what you say, to worship or not, to associate or not, to shake your fist in the tyrant's face by petitioning the government— your right to defend yourself and repel tyrants using and carrying the same weapons as the government does, your right to be left alone, to own property, to travel, or to stay put, these natural aspects of human existence are natural rights that come from our humanity and for the exercise of which all rational persons yearn. This is the natural rights understanding of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration and James Madison's Bill of Rights to the latter of which in all government have sworn, all in government rather, have sworn allegiance and deference. Now he makes this distinction. A right is not a privilege. A right is an indefeasible personal claim against the whole world. It does not require a government permission slip. It does not require preconditions except the ability to reason. It does not require the approval of family or neighbors. A privilege is something government doles out to suit itself or to calm the masses. The government gives those who meet its qualifications the privilege to vote so it can claim a form of Jeffersonian legitimacy. 
Jefferson argued in the Declaration that no government is morally licit without the consent of the governed. Well, no one alive today has consented to the government, but most accept it. Is acceptance consent? Of course not. No more than walking on a government sidewalk is consent to government's lies, theft, and killing. Surely the Germans who voted against the Nazis and could not escape their grasp hardly consented to that awful form of government. So Judge Napolitano says we need to distinguish between privileges that the government doles out and rights that we have by virtue of our humanity. Rights so human and natural that they exist in all persons, even in the absence of government. Are our rights equal to each other? Some are equal to each other, but one is greater than all as none of the rights cataloged briefly above can be exercised without it. That, of course, is the right to live. This is the right most challenging to governments that have enslaved masses and glorified in fighting morally illicit wars that kill and thus destroy the right to live. But if a right is a claim against the whole world, how can a government, whether popular or totalitarian or both, extinguish it by death or slavery? Well, the short answer is that no governments, notwithstanding the public oaths their officers take upon assuming office, accept the natural origins of rights. To government, rights are privileges. Stated differently, governments do not take rights seriously. Governments hate and fear the exercise of natural rights. Ludwig von Mises properly called government the negation of liberty. Freedom is the default position. We are literally born free, naturally free. Government is an artificial creation based on a monopoly of force in a geographical area that could not exist if it did not negate our freedoms. Government denies our rights by punishing the exercise of them and by stealing property from us. Rights are not just claims against the government. They are claims against the whole world. And he says this was best encapsulated by Rothbard's non-aggression principle which teaches that initiating all real and threatened aggression, whether by violence, coercion, or deception, is morally illicit. And that applies to your neighbors as well as to the police. Now, of course, in Rothbard's world, there would be no government police unless all persons consented, and he wouldn't have. A private police entity paid to protect life, liberty, and property would be far more efficient and faithful to its job, which it would lose if it failed than the government's police, which thrives on assaulting life, liberty, and property, and keeping their jobs. So Judge Napolitano concludes by saying the exercise of rights requires abandonment of fear, acceptance of truth, and rejection of compromise with government. As Ayn Rand famously observed, any compromise between good and evil, natural rights and slavery, food and poison, results in death. Death of the body, death of liberty, death of both. Man, I so admire Judge Napolitano's ability to, to take what, what have become somewhat complicated uh, subjects and distill it down to the very essence. You notice there's, there's no lawyerly sophistry there to convince you that uh, up really is down and black is white, freedom is slavery, blah, blah, blah. But that's sure what we get from so many of the uh, corners of officialdom today. It's interesting, last night I was going through uh, my Moleskine, and if you don't know what a Moleskine is, it's, it's just a little notebook um, that, uh, I think Ernest Hemingway was one who really popularized this, but it's a great way for keeping notes if, if you're somewhere and you don't want to carry around a great big ledger. And I was reading some of the notes that I had taken five years ago while I was in Las Vegas covering the Bundy's trial over Bunkerville. 
And it's just, it's so clear. One of the greatest lessons that, that I took away from that was uh, Ryan Bundy defending himself there in court, teaching the jury, teaching, you know, I, I presume he tried to teach, you know, the government officials who were prosecuting him as well, that in order to have rights, you have to claim them, use them, and defend them when someone tries to take them from you or infringe upon them. Now, I know some people are like, well, is that a call to violence? You know, if that's your mindset, it kind of makes me wonder, what exactly are you planning that you, w- you think would cause people to become violent? It can be done peacefully. But if you don't understand what your rights are and if you don't take them seriously, well, don't be surprised if your government doesn't take them seriously either. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com and LifesavingFood.com. You'll notice I've thoughtfully provided links in my show notes, which you can check out at TheBrianHydeShow.com. I think we've covered all the uh, web links there. All right, let's talk for a moment about what has happened, what has been done to us over the last three years. Now, look, I, you know, it's like picking open a wound, right? That's, that's kind of a painful memory. For a lot of people, we're still trying to come to terms with just how, how our lives were upended. Everything we thought we could count on was essentially stripped away, and we, we saw the real nature of a lot of people, particularly people in positions of authority. But if you want to understand exactly what happened, you got to be willing to take an unflinching look at it. I have a marvelous article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, The 70 Seconds That Shook the World. And this is a part of all that lockdown foo-for-all that, uh, that I don't know that, I, I, I certainly didn't pick up on this at the time. It's only in hindsight we're able to look at it and go, oh, this is what happened. But if you want to know, where was, uh, where was President Trump's undoing in all of this? It was in those 70 seconds. So here's how Jeffrey Tucker describes it. He says, on March 16th, 2020, following a week-long, or a long weekend, rather, of negotiations and deals about the coronavirus, Donald Trump, Deborah Burks, and Anthony Fauci spoke at a White House press conference for the first time about nationwide lockdowns. Now, they handed out a sheet of paper, and it mostly consisted of conventional health advice that said in tiny print, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. Shut it all down. Everything, everyone, as if the whole economy were a nightclub closing early. Now, Jeffrey Tucker explains this amounted to a full repudiation of not only the Constitution, but also of freedom itself. At the very least, it was a fundamental attack on the First Amendment guarantees of freedom of religion because it attacked the rights of Christians, Jews, Muslims, and everyone. And all evidence suggests that Trump did not know that the tiny text was in there. The reading of the text was left to the question and answer session. Even when it was read by Fauci from the podium, Trump seemed distracted by something else, almost as if he did not hear or did not want to hear it. Later, he bragged that the whole thing was his doing, but looking back at the history of that day, it's not so clear. So let's take this apart, frame by frame, to understand what happened in these 70 seconds as part of the Q&A session. 
A reporter starts by asking whether the federal government is telling people to avoid restaurants or bars or if the government is saying that bars and restaurants should shut down over the next 15 days. Both Fauci and Burks knew for sure that the guidelines were calling for them to shut down. After a long and tedious press conference about not much following a very precise question, Trump turns to Fauci to have him answer. Now, this might be because he wasn't listening carefully and he didn't know how to respond. Fauci then motions to Burks, who rises to the podium. Fauci probably believed that she would be the one to do the dirty work of announcing the lockdowns. So Fauci's clearly egging her on. Now is your time. Burks begins her answer with a strategic deflection, speaking tendentiously about how long the virus lives on surfaces. Now, that was nothing but a smoke screen, but there's every reason to believe that she knew it. She pointedly was not answering the question. She chickened out at the last moment, and a possibly frustrated Fauci interrupts here with a hand signal from the side. Burks immediately realizes what he was going to do. He was going to read the order that Trump did not know was there. So she decides to pass the buck. She gets giddy and silly with excitement, adrenaline flowing. She starts stumbling around with her words and says in a faux girlish way that she will let Fauci speak because he is her mentor. This was her way of saying she would gladly pass the hot potato on to him. Now, she likely knew that this was the great moment they'd all been waiting for. She was mad with excitement. Oddly, Trump was smiling too, but possibly because of her antics, not because of what was about to happen. Fauci steps up to the microphone. He does not personally call for lockdowns. Instead, he reads the guidance word for word. The small print here, it's really small print. In states with evidence of community transmission, bars, restaurants, food courts, gyms, and other indoor and outdoor venues where groups of people congregate should be closed. Now, as he reads, Burks herself is smiling ear to ear, as if the words were poetry to her. It was not an unfamiliar text. She'd been working on these words the entire weekend. Finally, all her work had come to fruition. Even better, she didn't have to read it. Fauci did. What was Trump doing during this time? Well, he got distracted by someone in the audience who got his attention. He smiles and points a finger. One wonders who and why. And there's screenshots. You're looking at screenshots in the article that show you. Was someone assigned to do the job of distracting him? Jeffrey Tucker says one can't rule that out. This was the most significant moment of all. The big reveal had come, and Trump's attention was clearly elsewhere. To whom was he pointing and smiling? Was he just pretending not to hear? Who can say? Fauci reads the text And then he steps away from the microphone. He had just read what is, in fact, the most totalitarian instruction ever given by any government in the history of the world. Jeffrey Tucker says, I can't think of another case of such a thing. That all human interaction must stop from sea to shining sea. After all, all congregate places include homes, too. Then Fauci steps away from the microphone. Then Trump comes back to the podium. He briefly rolls his eyes as if to say, there he goes again, but without a conception of what was just read or what it meant. At this point, what happens? Burks is gleaming, internally cheering. The deed has been done. It's over. They worked for many weeks to pull off this caper, and in an instant, it was done. Notice here that Fauci catches Burks' eye and gives a little nod. She smiles back. They were giving visual affirmations to each other. 
It was then that Trump clarified that he's not telling anyone or anything to shut down, but this statement contradicts what was read just a few minutes, just a few seconds ago. The exchange went as follows. The reporter asked, so Mr. President, are you telling governors in those states then to close all their restaurants and bars? Trump's response, well, we haven't said that yet. The reporter asks, why not? Trump says, we're recommending, but, and the reporter interrupts, but you think this would work? Trump says, we're recommending things. No, we haven't gone to that step yet. That could happen, but we haven't gone there yet. Now, this was another strange moment because Trump explicitly contradicted the words that were just read. The paper reporters were looking at uh, were clearly a lockdown order. Any astute reporter would have seen the huge chasm separating the edict from Trump's own words or understanding. And he links, Jeffrey links in his article to the full 70 seconds and says, deconstruct it yourself, see what you think. It was momentous, possibly the most significant in American history, the culmination of weeks of persuasion and planning. Everything that followed from that brief moment, the lockdown chaos, the closed schools and churches, the end of basic rights, the wrecking of businesses. And then began the spending, inflating, mad welfare checks, and the demoralization of the population that continues to this day. The population now subjected to shock and awe, the mask and vaccine mandates seemed minor by comparison. All of it unfolded in 70 seconds on March 16th, 2020. And Jeffrey Tucker says, so far as I know, this is the first and only article written so far to reconstruct this brief moment in time. Now, I'm, I'm hopefully not appealing to your imagination here. But as you watch that clip, just a minute and 16 seconds, when you see Fauci and Burks explain, ex- exchange rather that glance, that little knowing hmm, nod and smile at each other as Trump steps back up to the microphone, it is very hard not to conclude that they know they just gutted this man on live television and got away with it. That's the end of his presidency. And I know there, I, look, I know there are a lot of people who support Trump and you know, still love him and wish that, that he was back in power. There are things about his presidency that I miss as well. But this was one of the greatest missteps that President Trump made. The second one being, you know, his, his steadfast support of the vaccines and claiming credit for the vaccines. And if he would walk that back, if he would tell people, look, I'm really sorry, I understand that, uh, you know, these mandates that you get vaxxed or lose your job and, and some of the health concerns that people are facing as a result of the vaccines, myocarditis, anyone, I think he would find that a lot of people would, would be much more willing to support him. But, you know, ego is a tough thing. Pride is tough. Nobody wants to admit they're wrong, especially when you're in a position of power like that. But I would invite you, click on the link that I provide in my show notes. Check out uh, Jeffrey Tucker's article from the Brownstone Institute. I think he has uh, successfully broken down roughly a minute and a few seconds of, of some of the most important things, one of the most important things that's ever happened in our history. And it is certainly the moment that uh, the hell of the lockdowns was unleashed on an unsuspecting public. Nobody could have predicted exactly where it would go from there, but that seems to be the moment that it all tipped off. Crazy stuff. I can only imagine what the history books are going to be saying about this years and years from now. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Well, I got a lot of ground to cover in this last segment here. Well, let's just dive right in. It has been a long time since I have watched the movie Three Days of the Condor. This is one of uh, Robert Redford's films, very, very well done. And it's a remarkable film, even though it was made back in the 70s, in that it shows the deep state as an excellent plot device, you know, in a thriller movie. I've got this article from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. The title, Three Days of the Condor, the 1970s movie that revealed the real terror of a deep state. Subtitle, in the end, Three Days of the Condor leaves us with a riddle. What's the use of a free press if those with influence are too afraid or corrupt to print the truth? It's a remarkable movie. I hope that uh, you'll read John's article, which I've linked to. And, you know, <clears throat> I know the, the idea, even the very words, the deep state. Oh, you're one of those tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorists, obviously. And yet, uh, if I think most people would reasonably agree. Look, there is a certain segment of government, this the administrative branch and, and people behind the scenes that never change, regardless of how an election goes. It's like a permanent administrative class and and even they are answerable to a few elites up above them. So you've got the top dogs, you've got the middle dogs who are kind of the enforcers, and the rest of us are supposed to be the whipped dogs. I think it was Doug Casey who offered that explanation. It's brilliant. And of course, the people who are, you know, the, the middle dogs, the, the running dogs, if you will, their jobs, their livelihoods, their retirements depend upon keeping the whipped dogs beneath them in line. So if you wonder, why do people so vigorously defend, you know, government when there's so much wasteful spending and abuse of power and just, you know, monkey shine that's going on here? Why, why do people still continue to support it? And it's because there's a very sizable portion of the country that makes its living through that. Anyway, I hope you'll read John Miltimore's article. It really is magnificent. Here's the second one that uh, I think deserves some attention. Whether you received your draft notice or not, you are part of a growing culture war. Got a great article here from Deborah Hine. I hope I'm saying her name correctly. Conservative influencers vow to keep reporting on radical gender surgeries on minors after three medical groups are now demanding the Department of Justice investigate. Yeah. Three major medical associations on Monday of this week asked Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate and prosecute people who they say are allegedly threatening, coordinating, or provoking violence against children's hospitals across the nation. And we're talking about hospitals that provide irreversible sex change procedures on minors, including puberty, uh, puberty blockers, rather, chemical castration, and surgical amputations. I think this was best expressed in a, a meme that I saw recently of a little girl playing with her parents. And her parents asked, hey, what's your favorite color? And she goes, blue. They said, well, let's get your reassignment surgery scheduled right now. It's almost that bad. Now, they use a, a euphemistic term. The medical community uses uh, gender-affirming care. And it's a very uh, lucrative sideline. It's, it's, you know... It requires lots of follow-up visits. It requires a lot of preparation time. There's a lot of money to be made. And this is something that Matt Walsh and Christopher Rufo and others have, have brought out. And boy, I'll tell you what, the people who are doing this stuff do not appreciate the attention. In fact, they claim, well, this is just going to inspire people to commit violence against us. 
And they don't have the self-awareness to even think about, are you doing stuff to children that would inspire people to violence to stop you from doing it to children? They just think the problem must be with people who can't understand why we're doing what we're doing. They don't see themselves as the Dr. Mengele-type monsters that they are slowly transforming into. And by sicking the Justice Department on their detractors, these groups have said they've also pressured social media platforms to censor high-profile users who share what they call false and misleading information. So who are these medical associations? They include the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Children's Hospital Association. These are the three that wrote to Garland on Monday, claiming in a letter that physicians are being targeted and threatened for providing evidence-based health care. And here's the tweet from Christopher Rufo, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, who posted that letter on Twitter. These attacks have not only made it difficult and dangerous for institutions and practices to provide this care, they've also disrupted many other services to families seeking care. In one hospital, a new mother was prevented from being with her preterm infant because the hospital's neonatal intensive care unit was on lockdown due to a bomb threat. See, in August, apparently there was a bomb threat against Boston Children's Hospital, causing it to be locked down with patients and staff inside. Now, the bomb squad discovered... There were no explosives on the premises. It was a hoax. The perpetrator, 37-year-old Catherine Levy of Westfield, Massachusetts. But Christopher Rufo wrote on Twitter, the morality of this situation is blindingly clear. Threatening hospitals is wrong. Censoring journalists is wrong. Criminalizing political opposition is wrong. Surgically removing a child's genitalia is wrong. And the letter also states children's hospitals across the nation have had to substantially increase security and work with local and federal law enforcement due to a perceived threat of violence. So, Christopher Rufo, uh, Matt Walsh, because of his work in What is a Woman? Gays Against Groomers, which have been ruthlessly banned from all social media platforms, and of course, libs of TikTok, they've exposed what some hospital employees are doing through video and other documentation. This isn't just theoretical. Matt Walsh says, I believe gender ideology is one of the greatest evils in human history. He says, there is nothing they can threaten that would make me back down from this fight. I'd rather be dead than surrender to this madness. It's that simple for me. If you watch his film, What is a Woman? You would understand why. Matt Walsh goes on to say, I think it's worth reiterating. Some of the biggest and most powerful medical associations in the country are now calling on the federal government to prosecute and imprison those of us who criticize their medical practices. We are entering a very dark time. But he says, I'm ready. Now, there's much more to this. I hope you'll take a look at it. But, uh, wow. Again, I'm going to remind you, even in prison, inmates have a code of honor that puts at the very bottom of the garbage pail those who abuse and target children, particularly in a sexual way. Now, you may say, well, Brian, this is medical care. This is not, uh, you know, sexual molestation. You're sexually mutilating them. How is that better, you know, how is that, you know, functionally, you know, a better thing than than to, uh, to molest them? You're destroying these kids. And I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm casting some serious shadow right now and throwing some shade at the, the uh, medical... Uh, industry. But guys, gals, look at what you did to the American populace over the last three years and tell me why we should trust anything you say at this point.
I'm sorry. It's, I know it's harsh, but there were doctors who were recommending the vaccine because they would get paid. They, they would get a little kickback for every person you can get to take the vaccine. There's a little, uh, little something in, in your paycheck for it. They have become politicized. They have become grafted into government. They're bedfellows. And to me, that is a very dangerous place to be. It's, it's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm, I'm very reluctant to visit any medical facility, even the dentist's office. Why? Because the stupid signs are still up there. Master required to enter this building. No, I won't be wearing a mask. <laughs> and I don't. I don't make a scene, but, but I, I refuse to knuckle under. And I'm sad because I grew up in a household where my dad was a pharmacist. My mom was a dental assistant. And it just, you know, it's not like I grew up thinking, oh, yes, you know, medicine is a bad thing. I, I was a believer. And there have been times where, you know, I have found it very helpful when my shoulder was out of joint a couple weeks ago. I'm grateful that I could turn to medical personnel. I'm thankful for their professionalism. But as an industry and the upper echelons of that industry, they are thoroughly corrupted. And when you get to the point where you view sexually mutilating children in the name of gender-affirming care as, you know, something that's, that's not only uh, the right thing to do, you know, we're, we're being inclusive, we're, we're, we're showing, you know, the right amount of tolerance here, and look at our support, wave the flag, everybody, wave the flag. But they're doing it because it's profitable. I mean, how craven do they have to be before someone would step up and say, that's not right? Thankfully, there are people stepping up to say that isn't right. Unfortunately, thanks to a weaponized Department of Justice, now its attention is being focused on them. It's going to be very interesting to see how this shakes out in the days ahead. Sorry, I guess I'm not ending on a very optimistic note here. I will just, I'll come back then to the idea, not everything is as it appears. And if you want to be in touch with reality, tethered to reality... It's going to require some effort on your part. You're going to have to think a little more deeply. You're going to have to ask pointed questions. You might even bump into some truths that you don't necessarily like. What's it worth to live in the real world rather than have your mind hijacked by people with some weird motives? This is The Brian Hyde Show.